primary care knowledge boost, managing weight in general practice. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Today we're talking to dietitian Charlotte Cockman about obesity and weight. Um, some listeners might remember Charlotte from an episode that we've done a little while ago that was introducing the role of dietitians in primary care last March. Um, and today we asked her to talk us through her approach to obesity and weight management in general practice. Yeah, we were keen to get her teaching on the topic because um, we really liked the way she spoke about it last time. Yeah, it's a really fab episode. Um, we cover quite a lot in quite a short space of time, I think. Um, we talk about definitions, risk factors, um, approaches to conversations around weight with patients, um, a little bit about motivational interviewing and behaviour for change, um, and then all the different management options that are available and what we can do in primary care in quite a short space of time. Yeah, so enjoy and we'll be back at the end for our learning points. Um, so Charlotte thanks for coming back thanks for having me <laughs> um, would you remind everyone um, about who you are and what you do yeah so I'm Charlotte I'm a specialist dietitian my areas of work are generally in obesity but also health inequalities so I work within primary care network in Withenshaw in South Manchester yeah yeah and um, today we, we wanted to get your thoughts about obesity um, so we'll just start with some definitions if you would um, how do you define obesity so the Basically, I guess, so the World Health Organization defines overweight and obesity having too much body fat so that it presents a risk to health. And I think that's the really important bit to consider is it's where it, a risk to health is presented. Um, but for reference or for how we're discussing it today, clinically, um, we talk about it in the context of BMI. So a healthy weight range is considered 18.5 to 24.9 overweight 25 to 29.9 and then obesity is BMI of over 30 or 30 and over and we've got different classes within that so class one is 30 to 34.9 class two 35 to 39.9 and class three is 40 and over um, we have slightly different thresholds for people with South Asian Chinese other Asian Middle Eastern Black African or African Caribbean family backgrounds just because they tend to be more prone to that central adiposity. And so their cardiometabolic risk occurs at a slightly lower BMI. So overweight tends to be 33 to 27 and obesity 27 and a half or above. There's a bit of discussion about whether this should be lower um, in terms of obesity being defined at maybe 24 for the South Asian populations. But that's not um, standardised yet. It's just a discussion Um so there's some definitions, but I guess it's important to say this is how we're using the word obesity. And lots of people talk about it in, in different contexts and, and measurements. But this is the standardised way at the moment or the best way that we've got to talk about how we clinically define it. That's great. I like the way that you've um, you've given us both. You've given us the nice clinical set definitions and you've given us also that risk to health bit. I like that. That makes it a nice well-rounded definition. So thank you. Um, so um, you've already talked a little bit there, but in what situations can BMI not be trusted um, as a measurement? So BMI is a really tricky one because we use it as a guide. So in a broad sense to support care and consideration of health risk. But BMI is quite hard because it doesn't have nuance. So we need to take BMI in the context of lifestyle and other risk factors. So high blood pressure or high LDL cholesterol or family history of premature heart disease. Um, because 
the thing about BMI is it's a fairly indirect or imperfect measurement in that it doesn't distinguish between body fat and lean body mass. So it's not as accurate um, a predictor in terms of, of body fat and the risk that that causes, particularly in, say, the elderly, where there tends to be higher body fat and lower lean mass. Um, or in those that are really physically active, so have more lean body mass. Um, and it doesn't take into account necessarily that women on average have more body fat than men and tend to distribute it slightly differently. Um, so that's where you might use something like waist circumference instead. But there are some perks to BMI in terms of that it's actually relatively easy for all clinicians and actually individuals themselves to take both height and weight um, and that's why it is still typically used because everyone can do those measurements and it does we know the evidence to show it broadly correlates with body fat levels so there are pros and cons um, to BMI but otherwise we might want to use waist circumference. Brilliant. You've um, yeah, answered my next question, which I was going to follow up with was what can we use instead? So <laughs> waist circumference, thank you. Yeah, so waist circumference because we know that abdominal adiposity, so fat around the middle, indicates long-term health risk a little bit better um, because we know that's slightly more, say, dangerous or higher risk than fat that accumulates around, say, the hips and the thighs. Um, NICE actually updated their guidelines, I think, back in April um, that encouraged adults with a BMI below 35 to measure their own waist-to-height ratio. So we always used to talk about waist-to-hip ratio, and we know now waist-to-height is a much better indicator. And what we want is your waist to be less than half of what your height is and so your waist to height ratio in conjunction with BMI can help assess and predict those risks Um, again the only difficulty with waist circumference I guess is that there's no kind of one measurement that's been standardized in that there's lots of clinicians using lots of different techniques whether that's the point between your lowest rib and the top of your hip bone whether it's that narrowest point of midsection whether it's your belly button technique or the two fingers above the belly button so there's potentially high variation if the same person is is doing that waist circumference but is a good indicator we just need to work out at least in your in your locality maybe how you're doing it or within your practice so there's a bit of consistency there Thank you. Um, So we have three anonymous cases that are made up for this um, as kind of examples to guide the rest of the discussion that we can refer back to. Um, So I'm going to I'm going to read these out. Um, Maybe Sarah will jump in. So the first one that we have is Pat, who is a 40 year old teacher. And she has a BMI of 30 and she's been on several diets and goes to the gym or runs twice a week. Um, she's got a past medical history of osteoarthritis in her knees and she takes sertraline that was started during postnatal depression five years ago. And despite her initial progress with diets and exercise and help from the healthy living team, um, she continues to slowly put on weight and she comes in to discuss starting Saxenda. And then we have Jamal, who's a 56-year-old office worker and he has a past medical history of diabetes and hypertension. And his BMI is 33. He smokes. He doesn't exercise. Um, he has come in following a blood pressure review that shows that it's not under control despite being on amlodipine and candesartan. Um, his HbA1c is 53 on metformin and canagliflucin. Um, and so our last person that we'll sort of refer back to is Dominic. He's 35 and he has a past medical history of schizophrenia and psoriasis. So he's on olanzapine and isotalopram. He's unemployed, he lives alone and he smokes. His BMI is 40 and he's come to see us about his skin. 
So we're, we just thought we'd throw them up there to guide the conversation as we go along. Um, but first of all, can you talk us through why obesity is an issue? Yeah, so in simple terms, obesity is both increasing the risk of health conditions, whether that's diabetes, heart disease, cancers, and it can exacerbate others. So our patient with osteoarthritis, it's going to potentially exacerbate that. And it does that through a variety of pathways. Some are straightforward as simply mechanical stress of carrying weight, and some it's involving more of those complex changes in hormones and metabolism. And so that in turn, we know is either going to reduce life expectancy or kind of just as importantly, reduce healthy life expectancy or quality of life. So generally in society, there's a lot of fat shaming types of behaviour or thoughts and feelings and the way people refer to obesity. There is thoughts about how not all obese people are unhealthy. Um, Can you speak towards that if that's okay? Yeah, definitely. So it's such a big question and you could we could do a whole podcast on on weight stigma alone because mm-hmm. it's so prevalent. And yes, there are definitely those with technically raised BMIs who are not unhealthy. And equally there are those within the supposed healthy weight range who aren't healthy. Um and so what we need to consider is that individuals are so much more than their weight. <laughs> and yet there's so much significant stigma around weight, which then often becomes the key focus of any intervention whether that's that's health and that's because weight and obesity comes with that prejudice that obesity is a result of poor or lazy or bad choices but there are so many factors which affect weight and we focus so much on reducing weight and we forget about everything else whereas actually what we are aiming for is a healthier population and we often put a misconception of that equals a thinner population and it doesn't. It's making sure we are treating those as they are totally different. A healthier population does not mean a thinner population. So we need to shift the focus on health when we're talking about that or about nourishment and food and diet when we're talking about that, not that weight equals eating less, which equals everyone else is going to be well. And once we start to unpick that, then we start to reduce that weight stigma and kind of demonization that fat is bad or being overweight is bad or that being um, living with obesity is a, a choice that just comes from someone going I like food and it and it's not and it's so it's changing that conversation yeah thank you and then what about risk factors in terms of why do some people become overweight and obese so we know genes um, genes contribute to causes of obesity whether that's affecting appetite how we sense satiety, so how we sense fullness, metabolism, food cravings, body fat distribution. But we know strength of genetic influence on weight really varies from person to person. It can be low as 15%, it can be high as 80%. But we need to equally be aware that genes is about that. Um, It brackets a level of possibility. It's not deterministic, so it doesn't decide everything. It's not our destiny. Um, Mm. And then really important factors we need to consider social determinants of health and health inequities really key Um, and also the consideration that those inequities and obesity compound over the life course so we know that's going to get worse and get harder due to inequity growing and compounding then we've got the other environmental factors things like food choice activity levels sleep levels medication 
So if we're referring back to Dominic on olanzapine, we know that has a real statistical significance of um, patients on that gain weight because it really increases their appetite. Um, and then the other consideration is also both weight stigma and weight or diet cycling actually increases the likelihood of obesity as well. Because every time we crash diet or we do drastic diet, we lower our metabolic rate in the long term. So that's why we often see this weight go down and then go up and gain more. So, so many factors to consider of why um, a person might end up with that increased uh, fat accumulation. Yeah, that's fascinating, that last bit, actually, because um, you do see that a lot. Um, I wanted to ask quickly about medication. Are there any other big hitters apart from olanzapine um, that people should be aware of? All the peens, olanzapine, <laughs> metazapine, steroids is a common one. And there are just lots of different ones and lots will affect people differently. We see some drugs that really suppress the appetite and therefore potentially suppress when they're on the medication and wears off, ends up not eating all day and then eating lots in the evening we see that a lot on kind of possibly ADHD medications it suppresses the appetite and then when it wears off we see that particularly in young people so then evening hits appetite suddenly hits and they almost try to get their daily intake in a really short hit Um, Mm. so that's another common one that I see interesting thank you Um, and then we wanted to ask about your advice on how you open up the discussion around management and particularly if the person hasn't come in to see you about their weight um, for the cases um, such as Jamal or Dominic um, that we discussed earlier? Yeah, so again, I think the focus needs to be on healthy habits. It's not necessarily talking about weight. Many patients, particularly those living with overweight or obesity, feel they have to fight to be seen behind their weight and almost prepared to be critiqued or judged. So by changing the language or the topic of discussion, is far more engaging because if someone comes at you and says are you eating healthy you need to lose weight you're instantly going to disengage and what it does is kind of undermine the fact that you've done 15 different potential pathways of improving care you've gone we can go the medication route we can do this and actually one of the most benefits of lowering risk might be losing weight but that doesn't come across to a patient because they've not seen yet the cogs whirring of what might have impact or change and so what we need to talk about is how can we empower or engage some of those changes so instead of asking how's your diet where you're going to get yeah I think it's fine um or do you eat healthy and people want to go yeah yeah, I eat veg is actually going right how many meals did you eat yesterday because what that does is then give us an indicator of are they eating regular meals if so why not because then that helps us link back to some of the factors that might be affecting the reasons why people are overweight or obese they're not eating regular meals is it because it's a finance concern is it because they're working two shifts is it because they're prioritizing their three different kids is it because x y and z and it helps unpick that or it's going what's your favorite fruit and veg oh it's broccoli how often do you eat broccoli oh not daily why is that again is it because you're worried about waste is it because you don't know whether fresh is just as good as uh, frozen and tinned and it helps just open up that conversation more about how you as a clinician can facilitate that change rather than what we need to do is eat less, move more. And again, do you feel you're able to eat a nourishing diet? Do you enjoy activity or movement? Is that something that you'd like help facilitating rather than going, looks like your weight's a bit of a problem. Can we do something different or can I refer you to a weight management service? Again, as a 
as a patient, they're just going to see that you've not considered anything else that's going on um, in their life. Obviously, if it's something a patient brings up or acknowledges or identifies as something that they'd like to look at, then you can discuss that. It's really important to reflect what language they're using. A lot of the evidence says some of the preferred terms are around weight and healthy weight or unhealthy weight. Um, and it, we tend to have more negative emotional response with words like obese or morbidly obese or anywhere where weirdly an adverb is used. So things like high BMI or very overweight tends to have more negative response. But it's about using what the patient in front of you likes to use. I know. So, for example, I've used the phrase today living with overweight and obesity. So many of my patients hate that phrase. They go, I'm not living with obesity. I'm not living with my husband, my kids, my dog and obesity. They're like, I am fat. I have fat on me. So it's okay to have that discussion to go. We need to talk about food or activity or if they bring up weight to go, are you happy of us using the term weight today? Is that how? And and it's okay. I know it feels a bit awkward. Everyone wants to kind of cringe. But the reason that we have so much stigma is because we talk about it so negatively. Your weight is your weight wherever it is on the spectrum but it's only if we go use it in a derogatory manner that that's the way it's gaining power so letting that patient go how would you like to talk about it today is really important um so whether or not um we've identified someone as having an unhealthy weight or they've come in themselves um and want to talk about it what are our options and what can we do um for these people okay so i guess as a clinician you've got to consider that if you're lucky you've got a 10 minute appointment of which maybe 20 seconds can be allocated to trying to touch on diet and or weight. So it's recognising that, that it's unrealistic to unpick those complexities around food choice. So as an individual clinician in that scenario, I always like to say you can the best impact that you can have is focus on what can be added in. Just because you are overweight or obese doesn't mean that you're not malnourished. And that's where what we need to focus on if we've got a short amount of time is what can we add in? Can we add in colour? Because that's going to get your fruit and your veg. Can we eat the rainbow? We're going to get those vitamins and minerals. Can we add fibre? Because we know that's the way that changes the way that we kind of metabolise calories slightly or changes the caloric density of it. Plus, it's going to make our bowels feel really good. The less constipated we are, the happier we generally feel. And we get in some protein because then we're going to feel higher satiety. We're going to be, feel fuller. We're going to have a bit more stable energy. So if you've got that amount of time, it's what what do our patients need to add in their diet to improve that nourishment? Not listing things like, can you just cut out carbs? Can you stop eating takeaways? Can you cut out the chocolate? People know we need to eat less of those. Being told it doesn't help. What we do need to do is how do we feel a bit better so that we're able to make a bit more of an active choice on those other foods or when someone else has got a longer period of time to unpick that complexity of why we're potentially grabbing the the chocolate because it's going to give us comfort and what are the reasons behind that. Um, In terms of what services are out there, you've got your tier two services. So these are normally your kind of local community weight management services and they can be anything from your Weight Watchers Slimming World referrals to your social prescribers to your um, healthy weight coaches it it really varies depending on what area you're in so it's knowing what's being commissioned and the step above that is you've got tier three so that's your more specialist support so it's typically a clinician-led MDT so it's either being led by a 
dietitian or a specialist nurse, um, sometimes a GP with special interest, um, but it usually also involves psychological support and possibly complementary activity, whether that's PARS, sort of fitness activity on referral or something similar. And then you've got the tier four option, and that's the bariatric pathway. Typically, in order to get onto that pathway, patients have to engage in a tier three service for nine months to a year just because then that helps with the behavior change element and that's really crucial in terms of this whole conversation it's about how do we help that behavior change side it's all very well and good giving a whole load of information and advice and knowledge but unless we're helping change the mindset the the conversation the empowering about how we make that decision and that's often what the tier three and tier four services offer and then there's a couple of medication options in there as well. The one that's been around for a while is your Orlistat, um, which is um, reduces the absorption of dietary fat. I personally don't like this as a drug. Um, and that's mainly because when you look at the audits of Orlistat, the compliance of it for the full time is really low because it can have bad side effects of gastro upset and leakage and a lot of time spent on the toilet for patients and therefore when they have that side effect they end up stop taking it additionally for me it focuses on fat being the enemy food group because it's a fat binder and actually we need balance of food groups and fat can be really helpful for that satiety and feeling full and it's really important for our fat soluble vitamins if we're choosing the right fats in the right proportion um, it can be used as an aid, so I don't want to put everyone off it, but I would say it should only be used alongside where there is someone, whether that's another clinician in primary care, whether it's a dietitian, whether it's a nurse who can see that patient more frequently to engage in some of the behaviour change and lifestyle factors and have a more check, regular check-in rather than, here you started the medication, NICE says I have to see you in 12 weeks to see if you've lost 5%, I'll see you then, we're going to get less change. So. I'd say only prescribe it if you've got that complimentary service to go alongside it. The one that Pat wants to discuss, Saxenda, everyone wants it and everyone wants to prescribe it. Um, so that's your liraglutide, your GLP-1. What I would say is NICE does have some guidance about who it should be given to. In theory, we should be giving it to patients who have a BMI of over 35 they're also in that non-diabetic hyperglycemia range, so HbA1c between 42 to 47, and with a high risk of um, cardiovascular disease, and under a tier three service, so they're getting the behaviour change side of things as well. Um, and the reason for that is, one, that's what the evidence shows is beneficial, and the difficulty with medication is it needs to be an aid for sustainable change. We often, again, around whether that's weight loss or changing diet, we have this conversation that you're on it, jobs are good and things are fixed, you've lost weight, you should be like that forever. It's not. Life throws curveballs. There are ups and downs, different emotions, different work schedules, bereavements, kids, anything gets thrown into the mix that changes. So we need to find something that is sustainable and Often when we talk about medications, it's this is the solution. Go on it. Be happy. We need to go. This is an aid. Can we do X, Y and Z alongside so that as and when, like we've seen recently, Saxenda stock 
went out the window. It got poor. Some people couldn't get it. The drug is then only good that if that happens in the future, someone is still able to manage through that time until it comes back. It can still be an aid, but it can't be the be all and end all. So there's a bit of a caveat with those. And yeah, then just generally, I would say the best thing, whether or not you've got medications or services or whatever it is, a consistent approach, whether it's across your practice or your PCN or your locality is crucial because we know that patients don't get to see the same clinician really regularly. And therefore, if you're getting one clinician that's saying, cut out your fat and you've got one clinician saying cut out your carbs and you've got another one going oh it's not about that it's about portions and you've got another one going we care about calories nutrition information is overwhelming and it doesn't help therefore if you're having three different clinicians say three different things so taking that time to work whether it's practice size or bigger to go this is the advice that we're going to give consistently will also help improve outcomes and the same taking that little extra time to flick through the patient record to go what was discussed and agreed last time and do that bit of that check-in because you often see that different advice has been given there's been that chat about diet or about weight reduction if that's something the patient has wanted to talk about but we always do it in isolation actually we should be continuing that conversation over time to go I see you're really able to um get your veg in that was great you're still able to do that if yes great if no why not what can we help do so that consistency of approach is going to be really beneficial and uh, I, I don't know i've got a couple of follow-ups but i don't know Sarah, if you want to yeah me too yeah yeah i'm happy with this if you don't mind Sarah. yeah yeah of course um my first one is um that you mentioned about the kind of brief intervention with um talking about what you can add in in general practice or in primary care if we've got that short period of time and then about activity levels and things in the tier three service is there any benefit in talking about activity um, and exercise and things in primary care or is it more important to focus on what you can add in that bit that you said um no if again if activity is something that a patient feels they can facilitate then yeah it comes back to that healthy habits often reduce risk so we know that there's a growing evidence that healthy lifestyles are associated with that significant decrease in mortality, almost regardless of BMI, of baseline BMI sometimes. So if you can get increased activity, great. It's unpicking that sometimes, or I get a lot of patients come and see me go, well, there's no point talking about diet because I can't increase my activity. And it's going, they're different. It's okay. We can, we can do one, we can do the other, or we can do them both. But if at that time a patient goes, you know what? To get me on track to improve my lifestyle is activity, then yeah, jump on that, facilitate that, refer them to PARS, signpost them to the local area, get that involved, definitely. Um, it's, it really is guided by what's going to engage that patient to want to come back and chat to you because you've listened to them. Brilliant. I was just thinking about the whole process, really. So say like we've referred Pat, for example, because um, she's mm -hmm. seen some tier two people before. She's done Weight Watchers. Um, and I think she did some healthy living stuff. Um, what what can she expect then? Because sometimes they've kind of done things. It's been okay at the time. It might not be sort of sustained change. So it's this one's a hard one because it's so dependent on what your local mm -hmm. area offers. So, for example, um, for us, she wouldn't meet the criteria for a tier three service because she doesn't have a BMI of over 35. Um, so there it's potentially, is it about the social prescriber or the health coach that can provide a bit of, 
consistency is it actually so in our area some of our practice nurses are incredible about providing that consistency if they've got that some of ours have got a special interest so we'll help provide that consistency of check-ins and support is it going that actually things haven't gone to plan around weight because her mental health still hasn't been resolved Mm -hmm. and actually food and mood are so so closely related mood and ability to make change it's all of those bits where a lot of patients come to you and go well my knee's hurt so I need a a knee operation I need my weight to come down to this but I've also got low mood and also this is going on this is going on and they feel like they need to change everything and it's okay to go you know if we start with one it will have a positive ripple effect on everything else Mm -hmm. so for Pat it might be about unpicking which bit do we tackle first or which bit do we support first and telling them that's okay Mm -hmm. um and then it is just working out what's in your local area. Obviously, for me, I'm like, oh, you just send Pat to me because if you've got a di- <laughs> if you've got a dietitian within your uh, like PCN, then I specifically see people that have not thrived in some of the other services or are inappropriate for some of the other services because it's okay to say actually they need something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But obviously, that's really limited depending on what you've got as an offer in your local area. Nice yeah. little pitch for your services, though, Charlotte. <laughs> Um, I was going to ask you, I was going to challenge you a little bit on um, the bariatric surgery side of things. Mm-hmm. It can be so beneficial and you'd imagine that younger the better in terms of health outcomes uh, in some respects. It seems like such a shame to have it so far down the line. It's it's very difficult to get on the NHS. Mm-hmm. But what are your thoughts? Um, my thoughts are we, we know bariatric surgery has huge uh, beneficial results in terms of reducing risk and huge weight loss, both within that honeymoon period of two years, as well as fairly good weight loss retained or not regained at, at five years. So kind of success is around 50% of weight loss still maintained at five years because we know we see weight loss within the first two years and then typically regain and unfortunately we are seeing slightly higher stats of higher regain as the years go on Um, so it can be really beneficial Mm -hmm. the thing that is important is it has a huge impact on life Mm -hmm. social life the thing we forget about food is it is embedded in celebration commiseration daily living surviving And what often happens is food is a coping mechanism. Unless we start to unpick why we're using it as a coping mechanism and put some really good stuff in place first, our success in bariatric surgery isn't going to be as good because unless we've, the the biggest part, the reason that there's a waiting list or it's not just a backlog, there is a bit of a backlog, we're not going to deny about that, particularly post-COVID, is because we need that behaviour change. I would much rather refer a patient to bariatric surgery who hasn't lost as much weight, but has shown improvement in helping their mental health or having good coping mechanisms when that life throws a curveball compared to a patient that's just been able to commit to a three month plan and lost loads of weight, but hasn't done the behavior change side. Mm -hmm. Because once you go through the surgery, which has a big impact, you're going to get better results if they're then able to cope afterwards with whatever's going on and it's a combination of service and funding and the number of people doing surgery out there is less than everything else that the funding does vary but um yeah it's a tricky one it's not for everyone but it can be really beneficial for some and I think it's a really important conversation to have I'm seeing more and more patients who are going abroad to have it um and my view is obviously I would recommend patients don't have it abroad but if they do 
I still say, please come and talk to me. Let's do the education session. Because what often happens when you're abroad is you don't get the pre-care or the post-care package. It's just the surgery, bish, bash, bosh. And actually, we know we can improve outcomes. Again, both reduce complications and improve outcomes if we have good pre-surgery care, whether looking at something like a liver shrinkage diet beforehand and the post-care, which is really important to make sure they're getting that nutrition and nourishment in. Everyone's got slightly different views on that, but I'm all about if someone's going to go away and do it, I'd much rather they come and see me first. So at least they've got as much knowledge as possible to make the best choice and know and know what packages to go for. Yeah, it's really helpful. Yeah, that is. And my um, other question that I had um, was thinking back to um, Jamal um, who was our gentleman who had um, diabetes and hypertension. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering how effective lifestyle changes um, would be. So whether or not that's a more balanced diet or an increase in activity levels on both the short term, so things like getting his blood pressure down, getting his HbA1c down, but also the longer term of mortality for him. Mm-hmm. There's so many different approaches you could go to. And we know if we manage to get that under control, and reduce HbA1c that we're going to reduce the likelihood of complications. Obviously, I'm biased as a dietitian. I focus a lot on diet and lifestyle. And so I go, yes, we can do it. Under a specialist dietitian, you can get great results. Um, And I have done. So I've recently had a patient whose HbA1c was at 98. She's just come back and it's at 49. We did nothing to change her medications at all. And that's not an exception. I'm seeing it more and more if you're getting the right support and engagement and some of the notes that I put around Jamal is what knowledge base has he got around diet and diabetes has he had someone and and I see it quite a lot where they go yeah it's it's about my sugars isn't it and actually then when you talk about why food and diet has a role to play with diabetes that it's not about weight necessarily it's not about just healthy eating eat your five a day stop drinking Guinness it's about actually this is why this is what's happening with your body and this is why diet has a role to play that actually helps empower the change whereas we often have that disconnect between this is diabetes the condition and this is healthy eating and no one talks about the beautiful way it works together and actually that's the interesting bit that gets patients to go oh well if I do this and and then they get excited by going well if I do this we could potentially see a change in your HbA1c and did you know that's why this measurement does this and they get much more That's why we see engagement in things like diabetes my way is where you get them to go. I can look at my numbers and I can change it myself, as it were. It helps them feel like they're they're in control because they they truly are. But again, we know actually for Jamal, because he smokes and doesn't exercise, he might go, diet's not something I can change at the moment. And you go, that's okay. Is smoking something you want to change? Yes, no. Is activity you want to do? Yes, no. With Jamal, there's so many different diet and lifestyle bits we don't necessarily have to do it all in one go and also does Jamal care that's the important bit as well does he actually want to change his own health or have we just said come on Jamal get with it (laughs) these are all the things why don't you want to do it we need to sometimes take that step back as going is he interested in improving his own health and also does he feel like he can change is that self-efficacy there or does life feel a bit overwhelming at the moment and therefore do we need to look at some of the other bits and that's particularly important I'm seeing at the moment in terms of cost of living crisis it feels so overwhelming to try so many of our patients to try and make health changes whether that's food or not that sometimes actually going you know what yeah let's try and sort out your pip and get that sorted because that in turn is going to help 
everything else it's interesting that it just um reminds me of two things there and see if i can remember what i was thinking um one about um the chat that we had about um health inequalities and about the maslow's pyramid um and about how people aren't really going to care about their health and, and bigger things like that when they can't put food on the table in general um so it's mm-hmm. kind of ties into what you're saying there and i think that that's the other really important consideration is at least from a dietary advice point of view is whether you're a eat well plate fan or a plate model fan or a low carb advocate, whatever it is, is we need to remember often our patients are so far away from this is that we need to find a bit of a, a middle ground. So, um, so for example, this week I had a patient that looked like he had a brilliant diet. The classic question we always go is, and how many slices of bread are you having a day? And he was having eight to 10 slices of bread with butter. And so my advice isn't going to be, and he had been advised by a clinician to have a low carb diet. We're so far away from that. Actually, what we need to advise is, can we have five slices of bread and butter? So whatever advice that we're giving, it's about that starting at the start. So again, I'm we might have patients uh, living with overweight or obesity where, yes, I'd love to get them the perfect diet, but my priority is getting food in them so that they have a bit of brain power so that they can do the rest of the living it. I remembered what the other thing is as well. It was just to say that um, what you were saying before about um, working out where the patient is and if Jamal actually cares about what he's doing, it just reminded me about the cycle of change and whether where they are in it and whether or not it's worth even pursuing mm-hmm. it or do we need to nudge them into like a more contemplative place. Um, so yeah, that just rang a bell there. So yeah, I'm really happy with everything we've discussed. But yeah, so um, what, what do you think? Um, please give us some lovely resources. Um, this is the bit that I find really hard. I have still not found a beautiful resource that works for everything. Um, obviously, one of the best resources that you have in primary care is your ours funding for dietitians. <laughs> um, the BDA, so the British Dietetic Association, has some good food facts on there and particularly some good resources around eliminating weight stigma and language and communications to use. I find the best resource that I use is the food plate that shows half vegetables, a quarter protein and a quarter carbohydrate. And you can get beautiful printouts. I just have a a plastic plate and a Sharpie with it drawn on Um, (laughs) just because that gives us a real indicator of of helping go. Right. Where are you now? Um, In terms of if you're interested in the causes of obesity and how we can look at it a bit different. There's a guy called Giles Yeo. He's a geneticist and um, he has a book called why calories don't count but he also does webinars he really unpicks about kind of causes of obesity and, and why we need to look at things a bit differently um, in terms of resources for patients i don't use one resource i only have a resource of, that just has pictures of all the different food groups on and we talk through depending on what that patient is having too much or too little of the important bit that I go through is we need all of these different foods. But I can I can send some links and resources of good that have multiple resources within them. We can attach all those links to the episode description. So that's great. Thank you, Charlotte. Um, so as always, um, we're going to end by asking um, what you want listeners to take away from the chat today. What's your main learning points? Um, main learning point, I guess, is remembering to ask what the person in front of you wants. Sometimes that will be weight loss support. Sometimes that will be improvement in health and they aren't always the same thing. And the focus needs to be on facilitating change and supporting lifestyles. And that might also mean that our KPIs and outcomes need to change away from just weight and look at what are the health markers that we use. Um, the best advice I generally say is when clinicians go, what should I advise? I just say stepping away from the diet approach 
are you suggesting something that you yourself or others are still doing in five years time on your birthday and on Christmas? Because if not, is it sustainable? And that's the approach that we need to change. And yeah, remembering that we're aiming for a healthier population and this doesn't mean a thinner population. Thank you so much, Charlotte. Those are really clear points. Thanks for having me. Um, So talking to Charlotte again was just amazing. She speaks about diet and weight and everything that we've talked about so eloquently. Um, What did you take away, Sarah? Yeah, it's lovely to get her perspective. Um, So I really enjoyed the way she covered everything so competently. So going back to the beginning, talking about body mass index, why we use it, where its pitfalls are. The thing about waist circumference was interesting and the part about the waist circumference to height was really interesting as well, actually. Um, And then the big thing about healthier does not equal thinner. Um, that it's yeah. much more about much more complex than that we're talking about nourishment and lots of other things that that impact on your health yeah exactly i thought it was interesting as well when she said that um being overweight doesn't mean being malnourished um yeah. so that was um or the opposite way around as well being a normal weight doesn't mean that you're nourished um so yeah, yeah i think that's quite a, an interesting take on it actually but like she's saying, if there are things that you can talk about, talk about adding in. Um, or I really liked some of her questions like, you know, what's your favourite fruit and veg? Um, you know, can you talk about other th- other things instead? Um, like, um, do you feel able to eat a nourishing diet? Those types of questions are so good. Yeah. Yeah. They are. And actually like that, thinking about where where is the patient's starting point? Yeah. Um, because, yeah, there's no point even getting in there with talking even those nice questions about you know how many meals did you have yesterday and things like that if they are nowhere near the point of wanting to change and your role that day might just be to make them think about it a little bit more so that the next time they come in they're maybe more in a better place to talk about it but yes yeah, taking that step back and looking at the bigger picture about what's going on in their life I, I did think that was a really important message to get across yeah yeah it really was wasn't it and yeah like she was talking about using the right words and not demonizing yes. it and the whole thing about stigma around it um, it's so easy to just not think properly before you speak um, no. and before you've known it, you've kind of ruined that relationship or um, just made people feel worse about things. So, yeah. And yeah, just even asking the patient what what terms they're comfortable with um, yeah. wouldn't have even been something that I might have clocked. So that's nice yeah. to consider. And um, just the, the sustainability of everything, like think about if what you're asking the patient to do is actually sustainable would it be sustainable for yourself <laughs> on your birthday or Christmas so yeah I'm like yeah that's good um so yeah thank you very much for uh, listening and we hope you enjoyed the episode if you've got any feedback or if you'd like to leave us any comments we've got the survey as a link uh, along with all the other links that we we try to put on that we might have talked about in the episodes uh, or you can leave you can subscribe and leave us reviews on uh, iTunes as well that's always amazing to read till next time on primary care knowledge boost this podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of gp excellence wigan borough ccg greater manchester training hub and the gp fellowship program as well as greater manchester health and social care partnership just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2022. 
guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make any treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.